0: You're listening to a sermon podcast from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. Today we're in a series called A Song to Live By, and the message is titled No. May God bless you as you listen. Though our kids, are, our oldest kids are 30 years old now, we, we remember what it was like being parents, just like it was yesterday for the first time. And uh, and it doesn't seem that long ago. But there was a lot to know about being a parent, wasn't there? There was a lot to know about kids, and we felt ill-prepared. But oh, we, got, we got books on the topic back then, like What to Expect When You're Expecting. You remember that one? I came out, I think, new when we were parents. Uh, now it's probably into its... 30,000th edition or something Uh, there's also the second edition what to expect the first year and then the third edition what to expect the second year and there are others in there as well and they just continue because they make money so why not right but hey, we didn't have YouTube back then to turn to for help. We didn't have social media to consult with a, with a Facebook group. Uh, we didn't uh, have all those other things. There was a lot to know about raising kids, and most of us learned it from our parents and our grandparents. And there was even fewer books for them. And there's few books on grandparenting today. There's some. I encourage you to go to Parables or Kennedy's Parable Books one day and find some books on grandparenting there. We do have some in our church library too. But although I guess parenting is, is probably the, the preparation for grandparenting, isn't it? Books contain a lot of knowledge for us, but there's nothing like real experience. But there's also some ancient wisdom in the form of a song that explains something that you and I should know before becoming parents and grandparents and being a part of this parenting journey, a song that we can sing to help prepare us for anything that happens in the parenting world not just parenthood though, with other parts of our life as well. Now, most of us would probably uh, not really care too much, but commentators on Psalm 100, last week we started this series, but there's commentators that debate over the, de- over the date of the composition of this song, Psalm 100. But you're thinking, well, how does that matter, Mike? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're going to look into that today. If you remember last week, I explained that the Jews eventually compiled the Psalms into five sections or, or books, each of which contains a special certain theme. The first two books, from Psalm 1 to 72, explores the problematic story of King David and his royal family. The third book, Psalm 73 to 89 focuses on the failure of the Davidic kingdom, his kingdom, and the tragedy of Israel's exile, being taken into captivity by Babylon. The books 4 and 5, Psalms 90 to 150, where our Psalm 100 is included, they're post-exilic or they were written after the exile, at least that's what some of the debate is about. Meaning that whether they were written by the Jews, they were written by the Jews when they were allowed to return to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. They finally got to do that after 70 years in captivity. But some commentators, as I said, argue for an earlier date, placing the composition of Psalm 100 during the captivity of the Jews into Babylon still. So imagine, you're a Jew living in Babylon, a Jewish mother living in Babylon. You are far away from your homeland. You might even be far away from your family. Some of your family, because of the the captivity and the invasion that took place in 586 B.C., when the Babylonians invaded your homes, they destroyed your temple, your holy city, and everything that you held dear. And those invaders didn't, whom those uh, invaders didn't kill, they took captive and they dragged off into Babylon, some down to Egypt. The Babylonians were savage, and they were a cruel people. A similar thing happened uh, about 10, to the ten northern tribes of Israel decades earlier when they were captured and basically destroyed by the Assyrians. Now, most peoples who have been removed from their land would eventually just kind of be absorbed by their conquerors into their culture. And like so many nations before them, just sort of become a footnote in history. And that's what happened to the northern tribes of Israel. They just kind of dissolved into nothing. The southern tribes, however, mostly the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and most of the Levites, they were exiled to Babylon. Now, the Babylonian captivity, as I said, lasted 70 years. Nebuchadnezzar, their emperor, uh, at his death, the, the the empire started to decline. To the east and to the north of the Persian Gulf, the Medes and the Persians, they were rising up to take advantage of this political vacuum. And uniting under the direction of Cyrus, the Medo-Persian alliance turned on Babylon, and the Babylonians just kind of welcomed them without a fight. What, what was the point? They, they had nothing else to, to fight for. But as 2 Chronicles 36 and Ezra 1 have recorded, Cyrus made a decree throughout his empire that any captive Jew in Babylonia, if they wanted to, they could return to their homeland to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. That was good news for them. Cyrus even allowed some of the temple furniture and some of the articles of worship and some of the the treasures of the the, uh, temple treasury that were stolen by Nebuchadnezzar to be returned to them. And if you remember the books of Nehemiah and Ezra, you'll be familiar with the return of the Jews to their homeland. It's quite a story. So you can imagine you're a Jew in the era of Psalm 100, and maybe you're still in exile, or maybe you've just returned home. You're on your way to Jerusalem. And if you're the composer of this psalm, that's going to make for quite a different feeling and reason for the way in which you compose this This psalm, isn't it? Imagine you're still in captivity in Babylon. It's it's been a whole lifetime since you became a conquered people. Some of your people, some of your immediate family have been killed during the invasion and maybe even since. Life has been hard. Where has your God been in the struggle? When is he going to show up and help you and your family and your people get out of Babylon? Babylon. Or imagine you're finally returning home. Maybe that was a period that this psalm was written in, and you're finally returning home after all those years of brutal captivity. Again, some of your family and some of your friends have died already. They don't get the joy of returning home. But return to what? I mean, your temple is destroyed, the city's destroyed, her walls are destroyed. You're probably going back to nothing. Your home that you lived in was prob- is probably gone. The, the kids' synagogue school has probably been destroyed. However, this is not Israel's first captivity rodeo, if you so to speak. Since Abraham, the father of their faith, Israel battled the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, and many others. And then, of course, there was the 400 years in Egypt. Your ancestors cried out to God for help then, too. And God finally did hear their cries, and he finally delivered them out through the Red Sea. And remember, we spent that a little bit of time talking about that not that long ago. But out of Egypt, you're rescued into a wasteland. And you spend about 40 years there, just wandering. Generations later, during the period of the judges, Israel was opposed by the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Amalekites, the Philistines. And then after that time, until the time of their beloved King David, there were those who constantly fought against Israel, mostly the Philistines. That was their biggest challenge. You ever wondered how Israel could have maintained itself, its its national identity and its hope and its sense of security, even its relationship with God through all of that, all those eras of war and captivity. How did they parent in those kinds of times? What was it like to be a mom in captivity? Well, Israel didn't do too well. And the stark truth was, most of the time, whenever Israel was in captivity, it was because she had been unfaithful to the Lord their God. If you turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 13 to 21, 2 Chronicles 36 explains the background of Psalm 100. This is sort of what's in behind the mood of this psalm. It says there in verse 13 to 31, Zedekiah, that is the 20th and the last king of Judah before their captivity, it says, Zedekiah did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God and he did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet of God who spoke the word of the Lord. He became stiff-necked and hard-hearted and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in, in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians. God gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles of the temple, of God both large and small and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials they set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem they burned all the places the palaces and the, and destroyed everything of value there he carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him that is, Nebuchadnezzar, and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. So, in the time of Psalm 100, whether the psalm was composed during or after the exile, the Jews had been in captivity in Babylon because they and their leaders had forsaken the Lord. And it wasn't until they cried out to the Lord and repented and, and promised to be faithful that the Lord, like back in Egypt, delivered them and, and provided them a way out of the hands of their enemies. And God prophesies about that here, about Persia and King Cyrus. So when we read this psalm, it, it, it starts out with a Shout. Psalm 100, verse 1 and 2, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. And you'd shout for joy too as you watched the Lord deliver you and your family and your people and return them back to their homeland. But then it emphasizes that what Israel had forgotten. Verse 3, Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Our first point for today is this. Don't ever forget the Lord really is God. Don't ever forget that the Lord really is God. Verse 3, first part. Know that the Lord is God. Remember that Psalm 100 starts with a call for the whole world to join together in the worship of God, the God who is God over all the earth. We're not just talking about Israel, we're talking about the whole world recognizing the Lord as the most high God. No other gods can compare with him. And, and believe me, there were lots of gods of the nations in, even in Babylon. See, before their captivity and during it, God's people, from the king all the way down to the common folk, had forgotten that the Lord was God most high. 2 Chronicles 36, 13-14, let's reread it. Zedekiah did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God, and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke the word of the Lord. He became stiff-necked and hardened his heart, and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. Furthermore all the leaders of the priests and the and the people became more and more unfaithful following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. Notice that all notice that that evil that was there in this 21 year old king was there because he did not humble himself before the Lord. That was the evil that the king had done. He refused to humble himself before the Lord and listen to the Lord. He would not listen to the word of the Lord when it came to him, when he heard it. And he became stiff-necked and unleadable. That phrase stiff-necked is an agricultural and livestock reference. Back in the day, a farmer would hitch an ox or a donkey to a plow and with one hand, he would hold the reins of the animal and then with the other hand, trying to guide the animal, he would hit the animal. It has a long stick with a spike on it called a goad and he would hit the animal in the direction he wanted it to go. So pulling the reins, he'd hit the animal if it wouldn't go willingly. It was a beast of burden and oftentimes they were stiff-necked. They just kept going forward. It wasn't until that goad was enforced that that animal would go and turn its neck to the direction the farmer wanted it to go. The spike reminded the animal who was boss. It reminded the animal to stay humble and submitted to the master. What do you know about God? The scripture says, verse 3, know that the Lord is... Is God. What do you know about God? Is the Lord your God? Unquestionably. In other words, who's in charge of your life? If you're a mom, you might be saying, my kids seem like they are right now. But who's in charge? Are you humble before the Lord? Are you listening to the voice of the Lord when you hear his word? What will you do with what you hear God saying to you today through this word? I would venture to say that a number of people will probably leave here and will have forgotten everything that was said in this word once they leave the parking lot. If the Lord is God... Is he your most high? Is he your first priority? Is listening to him really important to you? Second Chronicles 36, 14. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful. Please appreciate that unfaithfulness doesn't happen overnight. It's a gradual thing. It happens in us gradually by persistent, let's use the phrase here, stiff-neckedness. It happens over time as we harden our hearts to what the Lord wants for us and we refuse to listen. How can you know what God wants from you? Well, you get into His Word and you submit yourself to that Word. You listen to His voice. You can know if there's a problem in your knowing If you resist spending time with him, or if you find other reasons for doing other things before him. If you try to avoid times of knowing him in the word, if you get too busy, if you you get too tired. Are those reasons enough? And that's when we turn to alternatives to God. And more and more, we want to worship what the people of this world want us to. When we fail to stay humble, and again, I'm not just talking moms, it says all the people here. When we fail to stay humble and know that the Lord alone is God, then in time, the people of the world will suck us into their detestable practices. We we just have to read the Old Testament to see that that was a repeatable theme throughout the Old Testament. See, when Israel forgot that the Lord was God, they avoided Him too. From the king all the way down to moms and dads and kids. And that's why the psalmist who lived through the exile into Babylon, speaking from experience, says to his nation and to the world, don't ever forget that the Lord is God. Or there will be consequences to denying Him. What do you know? What do you know about God? What do you know about God? God that you're passing down to your kids? What do the people around you, like your family and friends, know about the God that you claim to know by how you live? Do you see that, do they see that you know the Lord personally and that he truly is the God over your life? As a parent, there's a, lot of, there's a lot you can know from books about raising kids, but the most important thing you can know about parenthood, the most important thing you, you need to know to help your kids know the Lord is that the Lord is God, and there is no other. Grandma and Grandpa, do you know that too? Do you help to reinforce that? with your kids when they come over do you pray that way do you read god's word that way do you encourage the parents of your grandbabies that way but it doesn't have to be a god of judgment kind of knowledge that you pass on for sure it doesn't have to be a god of rules that you pass on god's judgment is is reserved for rebels But instead, shout for joy to the Lord, all families of the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. So at home, make music to the Lord. Make time to praise the Lord. Yourself, with your spouse, with your kids. Play Christian music at home. Pastor Tyler reinforces that every time he preaches. Play Christian music at home. Get a subscription to a music streaming service like Spotify. We're on Spotify. We have playlists there. You can create your own playlists. It's worth the investment because they're not making many CDs anymore. If it's a money thing, cancel another streaming service in order to fill your house with the songs of the Lord. And you can get any kind of style of music of of praise that you want on there. The other thing is control what TV and movies and social media your kids are exposed to. Most of the content out there, even designed for kids, is intentionally designed to make them avoid God and deny his lordship over their life. Give them wholesome access to godly content and filter out all the others. Your mom and dad, you can do that. Second of all, second point for today is this. Number two, don't ever forget who you really belong to. Don't ever forget who you really belong to. Verse three, the second part. It is He who made us. We are His. It is He who made us. We are His. These are the two grounds for our recognizing the Lord as God. First, that He made us, He's the creator, we're the creation. And secondly, that we are his. If he made us, he owns us. It's not the other way around. The creator supersedes the authority of the created thing. Note where the emphasis is placed here. It's the Lord God who made us, not the other way around. But there's so many people denying today how the creator has made us and that he has any right to tell us how to live and what to do with our lives and with our bodies. Have you ever found yourself arguing with the Lord? I'm sure you have. I've I've done it. We've all faced some circumstance or condition where we, we don't just question God's wisdom, but we can question His right to impose His will on us because we don't like what God is allowing into our lives. I've done that. Maybe it's a health situation that you're responding to. Maybe it's the loss of something or someone that you're responding to. Does God have the right to take those things out of your hands? Or to put other things in your hands that maybe you don't want? The psalmist is telling the world, get your perspective right. You are not the center of the universe. Yahweh is. And he is God most high. Cry foul, cry unfair all you want, but don't ever forget who you really belong to. The psalmist says you belong to him. Again, not the other way around. It's a matter of humility, isn't it? It's a matter of choosing to live a humble lifestyle in subjection to the God most high. To set your priority as him and not yourself. When the priority is me, I'm going to want all kinds of things that the Lord doesn't want me to have. When my priority is God, he creates within me the want to do as he wills. It's a matter of humility, isn't it? And humility sets a priority. Makes you wonder if you ever start your day off right. What am I going to do today? What are my plans going to be? What are my priorities? Got to look at my calendar. My, my, my. You know, that's what the Jews got into trouble for in the first place. That's why they were in Babylon. They forgot who was their first priority. Listen to Isaiah 45, verses 9 to 13. This is a contemporary to the prophet of Jeremiah, who speaks to the people of God in the midst of their captivity. He says, Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but pot shards, among the pot shards on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, What are you making? Does the does your work say the potter's the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to the father, what have you begotten? Or to the mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker. Concerning things to come, do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus, that is the king of Persia, in my righteousness, and I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, I'll do it. I'll change his heart. Doesn't that give a bit of perspective here about the history of a people who were prone to exile and captivity and sin? But some might say, well, I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I like God being the potter and me merely the clay. Isaiah says, tough. (laughs) Tough. He's the potter. You are the clay. Who are you to argue with him? This is an identity thing that you and I need to know, especially if you're a parent, because growing children need to understand their identity. Where do they get that from? The identity thing here is an important thing to know that it is the Lord who we belong to. As you parent, even grandparent, some of you, you need to help your kids know their identity. There are so many people out there in the world today, on social media, in our entertainment, in our schools, on Disney, for crying out loud, trying to tell our kids who they are. And they're not teaching our kids healthy identities they're certainly not biblical identities they're self-centered identities some even perverse identities and it's important to teach your kids verse 3 it is the lord who made you and you are his and helping them learn to appreciate and love that identity that's our role as parents and grandchildren grandparents And that means that their identity comes from their creator. Who they are and what they are. God owns that about them. Not the other way around. And that's a good thing. But the world tells them that it's not a good thing. So why subject your kids to that kind of pressure and media? Because they don't know the Lord like you know the Lord yet but they need to learn that God created them and that they are his. They're his kids. His possession. Being a kid today is a complicated thing. It's way more complicated than I was than it was when I was parenting and it's even way more complicated than when I was a kid. Remember kid uh, school when you were a kid? Being a kid it was tough, wasn't it? Even at our age it's even worse now. It's even harder. And the best thing that you can do to help your kids navigate, grandparents, the best thing that you can do to encourage this is by helping your kids know that they are God's creation. And God took great delight in forming them and fashioning them and making them into the person that they are. And that's a good thing. And that knowing establishes in them a value and a purpose that is eternal and will create within them an ability to navigate all the complicated things and and cross truths that are out there. So don't ever forget that the Lord really is God. Don't ever forget who you really belong to, mom and dad. Teach your kids these things. Number three, don't ever forget that he, God, really cares for us, for us. Don't ever forget that God really cares for us. Everything that I just said, well, actually, God said through the prophets and through his people, is now tempered with God's pastoral side. We like God's pastoral side, don't we? The psalmist says in verse 3 the latter part we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. You do realize that sheep are pretty dumb, eh? But they're also soft and cuddly. And I think that's why God chose to make them an object lesson. Hmm. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Hmm. Not only do we belong to him, we need him. And he cares for us. He cares for us. The psalmist brings to a logical conclusion here in verse 3 the fact that Yahweh, his faithful patience and powerful involvement with Israel proves his lordship over all the earth, over all the other nations, and even over all the other gods of all the other nations. But it also proves his care and his love for his people. His staying faithful to his people Israel is a testament to his sovereignty and his love, his unfailing love. He is faithful because he promised to be so. Even when his people, like dumb sheep, out in his pasture reject him as their God and they chase after other gods, he keeps pursuing them. Even after he tries to warn them time and time again, again and again, what would happen if they continued in their evil ways, return to me and I will love you, I will care for you, I will meet your needs, he says. But if you turn away from me, this will happen. And it will happen because I care for you. I don't want you going after other gods because I know how they will treat you. But I know how I will treat you. And I will love you. And I will preserve you and protect you. Even when God had to punish his people for their unfaithfulness and their idolatry. And that was a big deal. It still is. And he had to hand them over to other gods and other kings of other nations. God never gave up on them. He chose to be their God right from the beginning with Abraham. And he chose to be their creator right at the beginning with Adam. And he chose to be their shepherd. And he showed that with David, a shepherd boy. And he chose to never, ever be unfaithful to them, even when they were unfaithful to him. You know, sometimes we wander and we stray. There's a good old hymn about that. But remember, whether it's any of us, or mom and dad, or mom, or kids, your own kids, wandering, God loves them, and he cares for them. And he will bring some hard things into their life to return them back to himself. Because he doesn't want them being given over to foreign gods and other priorities in life. He wants to bless them and love them and nurture them. And he wants to nurture and bless you too. Do not give up on the Lord's love for you. Second Chronicles 36, remember the warning: the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity. On his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. Here's the thing if they had not forgotten that the Lord really is God, if they had not forgotten who they really belong to, if they had not forgotten that God really cares for them. God would never have been aroused to wrath against his own people. What does this 100th Psalm say to us today, though? I mean, last week, Psalm 100, verse 1 to 2, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with, with joyful songs. Yeah, we can all relate to that, right? We like that happy stuff. That's how we like to think about God, not this other stuff. But you know, all through the Old Testament, God's people liked all that happy stuff too. They liked a God who validated what they wanted in life and who looked after them and made them happy in life. And they were quite willing to worship the Lord when he told them what they wanted and gave them what they wanted. But when God told them what he wanted for them, they didn't like what, he, what they heard. So they rejected the Lord's prophets. They went after other gods and they would tell their children to do the same. Part of the problem was that God's people depended on, the, on other people for their experience with the Lord. There were people in their history, special people who knew God personally like Abraham and Moses and David and of course the prophets. Both Mostly, But mostly their experience with God, what they knew about God was what they had gained collectively about him, had learned collectively about him. They were a people of the covenants. They were the people of God. Collectively, they shared a story with God and about God. But individually, personally, the average Jew, we don't really see in the Old Testament that they knew God like we're given an opportunity to in Christ. They depended on their priests, they depended on the temple, they depended even on their king to know God and to know what he wanted from them. And now Psalm 100, if you'll remember, was composed to be prophetic in nature, which sung of Israel's anticipation and arrival of God's future Messiah and the hope of a new temple and the restoration of God's kingdom, all the ways in which they used to collectively learn and know about God. And so whether at the tail end of that exile or coming out of it and heading back to Jerusalem and back to the temple, even though it was in rubble and the walls and all that, this psalm sings of God's will for the people who, (laughs) as they were on the brink of reclaiming what they had lost, and he's saying to them, listen, don't forget Babylon. God is saying to them collectively, But it's a message that each individual Israelite was supposed to take personally. Know that the Lord is your God. It is He who made us. We are His people we are His, we are His people, the sheep of His pasture. You know, 39 years ago, when I first learned how to know God for myself, I depended on other people to know God. I depended on what the pastor said on Sundays. I ran to Bible studies to hear what other people said about God. I'd run to other people who I knew knew God a lot longer than I did, and I'd ask them, is this how God works? Is this a God thing? Would God do this? What would God want from me in this? That collective knowing is, is really important for a new, growing believer. But there is something that you have to be cautious about. I want you to listen carefully because there's something you and many other people, not all of you, but some of you are doing, is that you're still depending on a collective knowing of God rather than knowing God for yourself. You read books, you watch YouTube and DVDs, you listen to podcasts and Bible studies and go to conferences to hear what other people know about God hoping that you will be able to know the same things. But friend, do you know God any better? Do you know how to know him for yourself in the Bible, in prayer, and in meditation? If you really want to know God, you must eventually stop depending on the experiences of others and find your own experience with God. And that's what your kids need to learn, too. They don't need to grow up with mom and dad's experience, although that's a good thing right at the beginning, but they need to learn how to have an experience with God, a relationship with God, a knowing of God for themselves. And if there is one task a Christian mom or a Christian dad, a Christian grandparent needs to have, they need to figure out how to help their kids know God personally, not just collectively. That doesn't mean that you should stop reading books and watching YouTube and DVDs and podcasts and go to Bible studies. But it does mean that those become merely supplemental to your own personal knowing after time. See, knowledge of God all by itself isn't enough. You have to know God personally. You have to get to the place in your relationship with God that you know He cares for you. That you know you are His beyond a shadow of a doubt. And that you know that He is your God over all other things in life. And that He sets the priority. You have to get to the place in your relationship where you know these things. And parenthood, being mom, being a grandmother, being a, a parent altogether is all about helping your kids know that for themselves. So it's good that they know that about you at a beginning, at the, at, as early as possible. So make sure that you get to be in God's word and in prayer and in meditation to learn and know your God yourself. Modeling these things to our kids is so important. Don't ever forget that the Lord really is your God. Know that the Lord is God. Don't ever forget who you really belong to. It is He who made us, and we are his. Don't ever forget that he really, really cares for you. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. So this next week, why don't we all camp out on Psalm 100? It's only five verses long. It should be even fairly easy to memorize if you want to try that, but that's not my assignment for us this week. It's short enough that you could actually read a verse every day through the weeks of the days. So Monday to Friday, five days, five verses. Maybe try reading the same verse. Like, read verse 1 Monday morning when you wake up. Read verse 1 at lunch. Read it again at supper. And read it again at bedtime. Read it to your kids if they still live at home. And if they're too young to get it, pray it over them. Like verse 1 Lord, I pray that eventually my child will learn how to shout for joy and find their joy in you, the Lord over all the earth. Before you read it, try something. Try praying and asking the Lord to let you know him in new ways through this psalm. At night, take a moment to jot down a note, a note of knowing God. Maybe in a journal, maybe on a pad of paper, maybe in the margin of the Bible, or maybe on your phone. Just find a note app and write a small, short, brief note about what you learned from that verse about God, how you know Him better. And then on Sunday morning next week, before you come to church, sit down with a cup of coffee. I found out that the Lord loves coffee. Well, He loves me to love coffee, first thing in the morning. Sit down with a cup of coffee, read through the whole psalm, Read through your notes, and then spend some time thanking God for those things you now know about him. Sound easy enough? Five verses, one a day for five days, and write a note, and then review. Let's pray. Worship team, Lord God, we come to you in your word today. And Lord, some people who don't know the history that you have had with your people might look at this and go, wow, that was a tough word. (laughs) <laughs> but it's really not. Lord, for those of us who are convinced that you are God most high, for those of us who are convinced that you are the Creator and we are yours, for those who are convinced that you care for us, this is not a hard word at all. This is a word of invitation to all of us, to moms. And, Lord, I know it's especially hard for moms. I remember my wife in momhood early on in those days, and sometimes you do whatever you can just to survive. So maybe the dads in the house can take the kids every once in a while in a day and say, you just go spend some time with our God. Lord, thank you for all the things that you do for us through our moms. Thank you for those of us who've had an opportunity to learn from mom that you are God most high. That you are a creator. And that our identity is in you. And also, Lord, for the fact that you love and care for us. Thank you for the nighttime stories. Thank you for the bedtime prayers. There's probably a good reason why it's moms who lead their children to Christ first. So, Lord, today we bless the moms. Help them to see this psalm as an invitation, not not a hard thing, but a loving thing, a thing to say, don't forget the Lord. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this. We thank you for all that you do for us as a people. And we also thank you that you know us personally and intimately by your spirit. Guide us and teach us this week in your word, we pray. In Jesus' name.